Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to episode 14 of season 7 of the Thos Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, November 28. I hope all our American friends have enjoyed a happy Thanksgiving, belated wishes for that. And uh, to all others of you also have a very good week. Uh, hope everything went fine with you. Um, welcome to this new show. Uh, my name is Rudolf and I am your host. And today it's a bit a special type of episode. I will tell you a bit more in detail about that. I, today I have a co-host and my co-host is no other than the great Greg Kaminsky, Greg Kaminsky, who I was co-host for for quite some time on Occult of Personality, and I always enjoyed working with him. We've done several things together already, and uh, I'm happy to have him back here as a ghost just for this show, where we interviewed together our common friend, Charles or Chuck Dunning, uh, Charles Dunning, who you, I will introduce to you a little bit later after the first piece of music. Welcome to everybody who is new to this show. I'm glad you found us and I hope you will stay with us for a long, long time, like many others have done before you and I welcome those who have done so. Great to have you here. And uh, I must say, I'm really, really happy about the response that you also gave to last week's show with Jason Reed, because um, it was a completely new subject for this show, Chinese magic. And Jason is somebody you really ought to discover who is not yet around much. And we had a very, very, very nice response. And, you know, what makes me happy is that people on this show who are listening seem to be confident that they can discover new people. We have, of course, great download figures when we invite very well-known occultists or authors, and that's great. And uh, that's why they are great, because you all love them. And um, you love them because they are great. So that's reciprocal. But then, of course, as you have seen before, I always like to introduce new people also, people who have read the first book, have written the first book, or who I have discovered maybe with your help, even as a listener who suggested somebody or who I have discovered myself. And it makes me happy that you seem to trust this show, that you go also for this uh, little less known people and are listening and that's really great. Really, thank you for that. And we keep doing that in the future, I promise. Right. If you like the show, well, give me your feedback. Give me your feedback on Twitter or on Facebook, but also, of course, why email info at thoughtshermes.com or go to the website with www.thoughtshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. 
You can send me something through the contact page there or via voicemail. But of course, while you're there, don't only go to send me an email. That's nice. But go there to discover all the previous episodes, more than 100. And the episodes with their show notes are a rich, rich discovery field by now. Many interesting things and links you can find there. And while you're at it, click on the Patreon button. Why not? Would be lovely to have you as a patron as well. We need all of you to support us. And thank you again. This week we have two more. So we're up to 52 patrons now. Yeah, I want to give you that figure because you might think we have hundreds. We have thousands of listeners and that's great. Each week, thousands of listeners. And uh, I'm really happy that we've worked it up like that. So we have 52 patrons. Would be nice if some of the thousands would also be joining those 52. Um, It's really not for my coffee or for my living, not at all. It's just for bearing the cost of that show. And um, it's nice if you contribute when you enjoy. Thanks so much. Find that on the website or on Patreon directly. Right. And of course, now it's time for some music. And today's music is from a group. I think it's only two musicians, actually, who formed that group, which is called Arcanta. And Arcanta, I did not discover by myself. Uh, it was actually our guest, Charles Dunning, here today, who will who has sent me that music, who said, well, I, I know your show. I've listened to some of your episodes. I know that you're doing music there. And why don't you play this? And he offered me the files to play. Um, and... Uh, uh, it is he, as he says himself, he feels moved by this music um, because uh, it came at a time in his life when he was ready to begin into more visible roles in regards to esotericism and contemplative practice. And um, so it was an important moment in his life when he discovered that music and he thought they were sadly little known. And it's true. Um, and you, sh- I'm glad you had that idea, Chuck. And uh, I'm happy to play three of their tracks today. Yes, the members of the group are called Julian West and Thomas Carlyle Ayres. I hope I pronounced that properly. A-Y-R-E-S, Ayres. If not, I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, uh, it's a very evoking music. It's a kind of atmospheric keyboards, guitar and percussion and um, and uh, very particular voice usage. So you'll discover yourself and two of the three tracks actually are the tracks that Charles Dunning, Chuck Dunning, who is my guest here today with Greg Kaminsky, um, who chose them himself. So without further ado, I'll let you discover Arcanta, that group. And the first song that we are going to hear is called Golden Song. Enjoy.
Golden Song by Arcanta, that music that has suggested and be gifted to me uh, by our guest Jack Dunning here today, who um, really likes that music and I can understand why it's great, great stuff, I believe. And especially for something like contemplation, it can deliver a Good musical. I don't like the word musical background. I think it's more than that. It's musical inspiration. Even if you listen to it while you're doing contemplation or meditation, um, this is not just some background music. It's something that inspires you and carries you along. And that's really that type of music. Actually, I'm not sure if our canta are still um, active as a group because that CD that I played for you here, is they, it was recorded in 2007 already, so um, I'm not sure if they have issued other recordings since then. I couldn't find much about it. Um, well, whatever, it's great music. And the, this CD, Book of Mirrors, it's called the album, can be found with Solar Sound Records. So always worth it. And go to Bandcamp. There they are. Arcanta. I'll put the link in the show notes. We'll hear more of them later in the show. But now let's turn to our guests here today. Well, let me explain how that episode came into being. It was my idea that um, I wanted to create something special for our patrons. And the idea that I had was to offer something called Trio. Trio is where I invite somebody I had already as a guest on the show. And I invite that person to co-host the show and interview somebody that we pick together. And um, the particularity about this trio is not only that we are three people here, but that actually it is being done live and on video. And that live video event is only accessible to patrons. Another good reason to become a patron, right? So we did that show in September. In late September, we recorded our talk, of course, and that's what you hear today. But it was initially a live event. Uh, so this is all uncut and live what you hear here. So if you might have one or the other reference in the interview to the fact that somebody might be listening live or so, that's the reason. So don't be surprised, right? Okay, and well, the video was also was also there the possibility that guests had who attended the live show, so patrons only, they could uh, ask their questions. Um, we didn't get any questions, to be honest. In any case, um, uh, now today, this show is therefore uh, now the public version uh, on audio only for you guys who are our regular listeners here. And I think it turned out to be a very, very interesting talk. Let me tell you a few words about our guest, Charles Stunning. So back to my co-host, of course. You all know Greg Kaminsky. He, as I sometimes call him, is the grandfather, as I say also in the interview, of occult podcasting. It was the occult podcasting that I discovered, like many of us, with his occult of personality. And I was more than honored that he invited me to be his co-host at some point, just at around the time when I started my own podcast, Thoughts Hermes here. I owe him uh, many thanks for that still today. I learned a lot there. And um, so 
it was a pleasure to have him as my co-host this time. We have done some things together in between. He was my guest on this show as well. So, and I may say that Greg will be returning as a guest in just a couple of weeks because he has just published his book, uh, his new book. Uh, I think it's his, even his first book that he has published. Um, so we will talk about that, but that's for another week. Now it's about Jack Dunning, Charles R. Dunning Jr. by his full name, who has written two books about contemplation in the Masonic context. Now, Charles is a real specialist on contemplation, and that's also the title of our show here today, Contemplation. And um, I think it's a very important um, part of the occult practice, and we really uh, should talk about that, and that's why we do it here today. Um, Contemplative Masonry was his first book, which has been released in March 2017. And now, last July, so just a couple of months ago, the Contemplative Lodge is the second one, the sequel, so to speak. Um, it is Masonic books, yes, but our talk and also the subject is not Masonic exclusively at all. Um, on the contrary, I think it is important that contemplation is seen in the broader context. And if we take here Masonry as an example, in those books, um, that's, it can be used just as well for other techniques um, on contemplation, especially the fact do, of doing inner work, which contemplation is, together in a group is something that's very rarely done and very interesting and very helpful. I must say, I've really learned a lot from Chuck, not only in the Masonic context, but in general on contemplation. And I hope you will see it just the same way. So I have talked so much here today because I also had to explain to you uh, a little bit about that Masonic context, a little bit about why we did that show in the format that we are doing. So no text from Chuck's book here today because we are now delving right into the interview. The interview which once again we recorded late September and its first part is about 40 minutes long. So it's a few minutes longer than you're used to. And after those 40 minutes, I'll come back to you and we will listen to another beautiful piece of music by Arcanta. But for now, let's move over the big pond. Let's meet Greg Kaminsky, my co-host, and Charles R. Dunning Jr., Chuck Dunning, who is our guest here today, talking about contemplation. Here comes the interview. So it's great to have two people here with me on video and on the microphone the first time ever. And we do that live. And when you hear that, you have already missed the live recording. Too bad for you. Uh, it's great to have two people here. A, it's Chuck Dunning, Charles, uh, Charles R. Dunning Jr., to be precise. Uh, Chuck, it's great to have you here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Thank you, Rudolph. It's wonderful to be here. And, and uh, yeah, it's great to, to see Greg again, too. Absolutely. And that's what I wanted was going to say. And I have a co-host here today, and it's a great pleasure to have my friend Greg Kaminsky with me. I do not have to introduce Greg in the community here who is listening. Everybody knows him. He's the 
May I say grandfather of occult podcasting, or does that make you feel old, Greg? <laughs> that's okay. I think I am old, so that's fine. Thanks for no, you're old. not. You are you younger again. than me in any case, right? Yeah. Well, Chuck, uh, it's great to see you again, too. Thank you, buddy. Absolutely. So for a first co-hosting on this show, it, I thought it was... The, Greg was the ideal choice. We had done some shows together on his occult of personality. Well, it's quite some time back. So, but we are a yeah. kind of team already. So, Chuck, you're in good hands. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, tr I trust you both. <laughs> <laughs> so, our subject here tonight on the show will be um, partly a book that has just been released. Well literally a few days ago, The Contemplative Lodge. And um, it is about contemplation, meditation in regards to Freemasonry. And it's not the first book that Chuck has released on that subject a few years back. Uh, Contemplative Masonry, I think it was called the first volume, was more uh, a volume where he spoke about solo contemplation and, and now it's in the context of the group. So we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk about things beyond masonry in regards to contemplation and meditation. I have two specialists here in front of me for that. And um, uh, But before we do that, um, Chuck, we speak about yourself. Because um, uh, when, when it comes to becoming a mason, becoming inspired by contemplation, uh, starting to write books and all the things that you do, this starts somewhere in your life. And mm -hmm. we are, Greg and I are now both curious to learn a bit from you where it all started for you and um, how Chuck Dunning became the Chuck Dunning that he is today. Um, well, so... You know, I think I've always been interested in states of consciousness, even as a child. Um, when I would go to bed at night and wasn't ready to fall asleep, what I would find is that I took these long flights of imagination as a child. And, uh, and I had a precocious interest in things like eternity and infinity. And, uh, and so those were things that that often occupied my thoughts in the wee hours of the morning or, or late at night. But um, I was raised in a fairly uh, traditional, uh, somewhat liberal Christian family, and theologically liberal, I mean, um, where the clear emphasis on what Christianity was about was love. Um, we had a rich prayer life in my family. Um, And um, also around the age of nine, I had what I recall as my first lucid dream. And, um, and that just completely uh, opened my mind to the possibility that uh, physical reality wasn't quite the reality that everybody said it was. And... Um, And so it was never, from that point forward, it was never possible for me to not see consciousness at the center of everything. And um, uh, I don't think I ever slipped into solipsism, but, uh, but still, it was clear that, that consciousness was, I mean, everything, everything that we, we experience, everything we think, everything we do, everything we feel, all of it has consciousness at the center. And... Um, 
and of course I couldn't have articulated that at the age of nine, but you know, I was clearly struck by this experience. And, um, and so I had an interest in things esoteric because my father was a Freemason and had a copy of uh, Morals and Dogma and some other uh, Masonic books. And it's Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma, which is this great compendium of comparative philosophy and religion. And, um, uh, and one that dives into uh, esoteric and mystical aspects of philosophy and religion, not you know, uh, not just the mainstream kinds of comparative studies that we often see. And so, again, way over my head at an early age, but I was still being exposed to this information and, and picking up on little bits of it. So that by the time I um, was ready to go back to college after a kind of a, a long rough, rugged road in my late teens and early 20s when I was ready to go back to college, um, I decided that I would minor in philosophy and I connected with uh, the man who became my first mentor in, um, in spirituality and spiritual practice and discipline. And his name was Dr. John Miller. And um, uh, John taught a course called the Ancient Wisdom Traditions, which was really all about esoteric, initiatic, kinds of spirituality. And, um, and he also taught uh, seminars in meditation, different forms of meditation, and not just sitting kinds of meditation, also moving meditation, mindfulness. And um, those were non-credit seminars, and I could just take it over and over and over. And basically, he initiated me into the formal practice of shifting my consciousness. Um, and, um, and the first things that I learned from him that, that I really focused on, he gave us exposure to a number of different uh, traditions and techniques. But the thing that I really focused on in working with him for a while was basically a system of kundalini yoga, activating the chakras with the seed mantras and visualizations that go with those. Um, and that was the basis of my practice for quite a while. I was also learning some secular techniques because I was majoring in psychology, looking at a career in counseling. And so I was learning some, some secular uh, methods for turning within and um, was fortunate enough to find some local counselors who actually included meditative practices uh, with their therapy. And so I was able to study with them and, and learn those things. And that's kind of where my foundation is in, uh, in, in kind of a formal discipline is, is, is those two, the, the meeting point of those two things of, of this, um, of this, uh, basically Kundalini yoga and, uh, secular mental health oriented practice. And then after that, I got into Western esotericism, um, through Freemasonry and, um, uh, specialized in Hermetic Kabbalah, Rosicrucianism, um, and studied with a man one-on-one -on -one for about 16 years. And uh, between him and, and John Miller, I had two really great teachers who both emphasized some different but very practical aspects of spirituality. John really emphasized the importance of love 
And my second teacher really emphasized the importance of discipline. And uh, that's a that's a great combination. Good combination, certainly. Greg, up to you. Thank you, Chuck. Um, yeah, you were very fortunate to have two wonderful teachers like that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I'm curious at what point and how did you become familiar with contemplation as a practice? And I'm really curious how it was introduced and And um, if you could give us like the context about that and like any explanations of sort of your experience in like developing an awareness of how it works. Okay. Um, I think the first time that I really got the idea that contemplation was more than just Uh, thinking deeply about something, that it could actually be a kind of discipline and that there were different ways of, of practicing contemplation was um, with John Miller. In this course of the ancient wisdom traditions, one of the things that we covered were uh, the different mystical traditions from different religions. And I noticed that different traditions used the word contemplation, but they used it differently. And... Um, And at, in the academic world, contemplation was just starting to emerge as a kind of umbrella category for certain studies, studies that had to do with shifting consciousness. And, um, and so I think the idea of contemplation initially appealed to me because it meant um, It meant experiencing things, connecting with things, and understanding things at a deeper, more intimate level. In effect, what I understood eventually understood it to mean is that contemplation, particularly that word connecting is important, that contemplation is at some level about becoming one with the thing that you are focusing your attention upon. And, um, and I just took that as the root then for so many other practices that every practice now for me has a contemplative dimension to it, no matter what it is. Um, and, um, and I know that that's not the way the word contemplation gets used in some traditions. So, so for instance, in, in, uh, in Roman Catholic mysticism, uh, we, we find the word contemplation specifically used for this kind of uh, quiet prayer, silent prayer in which one is opening to the immediate presence of the divine. Well, that sense of, of union is definitely there, but I don't think many people in that tradition would recognize some of the other things that I experience as contemplative as, as being appropriately attached to that word. Which brings me to a question which we maybe should touch now, if you can. Jack, can we quickly define um, mindfulness as opposed to meditation, as opposed to contemplation? 
I, I think we can define them for our person, our our purposes here right now, right. because again, those they get they get used so differently. Sure. Um, so for me, contemplation is this kind of umbrella term. I'm using it the way it's used primarily in the academic world, that it's this kind of umbrella term for different ways of shifting and focusing consciousness. My favorite shorthand definition is the intentional practice of awareness. And, um, and then mindfulness is um, that intentional shift to be fully present in the moment to whatever it is that I happen to be doing. And that doesn't necessarily have to be in a sitting meditation with my eyes closed. That can be, you know, brushing my teeth in the morning or fixing my breakfast or whatever it is that I'm involved in. Um, and, um, and, and, and present not only through my senses, but also to be present internally to you know, to what is the relationship between me and whatever it is that I'm engaged in and to be aware of that relationship. Not so much analyzing it, not making associations and trying to, um, you know, put it in some kind of big intellectual context because then that pulls you out of the moment, right? It's, it's really just being present to what is it that's making itself apparent to me right now in this moment. And, um, uh, and trying to open my consciousness as much as possible to those different inputs. And then um, <clears throat> meditation for me um, is, a, is, is really a term that is most often used when talking about sitting still, closing the eyes, or focusing the eyes on something in particular. Um, and uh, and then using that as a means to shift consciousness, a context in which to shift consciousness. However, moving meditation then kind of is a whole other thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the same basic principles still apply. And active passive meditation that it is sometimes called and all, the, all those yes. different well, aspects of it, right? Right. Yeah. It gets very rich. And, and I want to mention too, I would throw ritual in here as well. That ritual for me is moving meditation and to be mindful in the practice of ritual is a very a powerful contemplative discipline. Well, that's maybe a point, Greg, that we can touch back later on again, because ritual and contemplation is, of course, something, especially in regards to your second book, that is highly interesting. Mm. It sure is. Um, I'm curious, at this point, I'm, I want to ask you how and I guess the why is apparent, but maybe you could talk about it anyway. Um, you connected your ideas about mindfulness, meditation, contemplation, and Freemasonry. And um, because there is uh, inherent connections there, but you, you've made them more readily apparent and uh, done more in that space, I think, than anyone else that I've can think of um it's it's like the like freemasonry makes itself available to do this but um it, it hasn't really been encouraged or fostered or cultivated really the way i've seen it, it the way it now with your your work 
And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you brought these things together. Mm. Um, so when I joined Freemasonry, it was right on the heels of that course, the ancient wisdom traditions. And it was in that course that I really, even though I was practicing primarily in what most of us would call an Eastern uh, system, this Kundalini Yoga, I was really powerfully attracted to uh, the Western traditions. That's where my, I mean, I'm native to the West. I grew up in a devout Christian family. Um, and I realized as a result of my studies in psychology that um, I would always see the world uh, through a kind of filter, through a kind of lens that um, had been tinted by my experience uh, in Christianity. And, um, and so I had a decision to make. Was I going to try to uh, compensate all the time for that filter and question that all the time, or would I try to work through it, work with that in some ways? And, and, and what I found was that, um, that if I was willing to relax and not fight against that programming that I had had as, well, even when I was still in the womb, you know, my mother was singing Christian hymns when I was in her womb. And, um, and so if, if I could just allow that childlike innocence to, to be there with that symbolism, but also with the sophistication of an adult understanding of philosophy and, and those sorts of things, that I had the opportunity to have a much deeper, richer experience and one that wasn't so hidebound by the mainstream uh, experience of Christianity. And so I had that going for me. And then also... Um, I was really attracted to Freemasonry, also very attracted to Rosicrucianism. I, I, I can easily explain, explain Freemasonry because there's so much uh, tradition of that in my family and among the men who were my father's peers and so on. I don't know exactly where, I mean, I could, I could come up with some possibilities, but I can't say as easily where my interest in Rosicrucianism came from. Maybe it's just because you, you know, you get interested in the esoteric and you're Christian. Well, that's just kind of a natural next step. And, um, and so I went, I chose Freemasonry as the direction I would go. And, uh, and what I was looking for was an initiatic society, a society that would bring me in men who had been initiated and had engaged in the process of transforming themselves and, and assisting each other in that experience. And uh, I wanted elders and I wanted mentors and companions in that, uh, that process of transformation. And, um, and so when I became a Mason, I didn't quite find that. Um, you know, what I found was a lot of other wonderful things but not the thing itself that was most attractive to me and that was really at the core of everything that I had read about what masonry is in essence, you know, that it's supposed to be this initiatic transformative tradition. 
and um, and so not finding what it was that I look that I was looking for, then I had a choice: do I go somewhere else, or do I try to develop it where I thought I would find it? And um, and it was kind of like stepping into a fertile field that just hadn't had any seeds planted in it yet. And I thought, okay, well, I've got two really good teachers. I really don't need to find another teacher. So maybe what my calling here is, is to take what I'm learning from them and make it available to Masons, who I know are coming into the fraternity looking for the same things that I'm looking for. And that's that's the choice that I made. Very interesting. Now, I have two questions I have to choose kind of well let me go back in age a little bit you you just mentioned again your childhood and that you were influenced also by your forefathers into masonry so to speak um, yes. do you think the experience that you made as a child also that you related in the very beginning with the lucid dreaming and do you think that almost or every child would have that and it is just kind of not accepted or not taken seriously because the child doesn't find the background needed to to take it seriously so to speak or do you think that's something that you as a child you were a bit different and that's why you had that experience <laughs> Rudolph I, I suspected it's some of both um, I, I think that a lot of children experience different states of consciousness. I'm sure, and yeah. for one reason or another, they either don't share them or when they do, they, you know, like they know intuitively that this is not going to be received well. And so they don't say anything about it. Um, and in other cases, they do share them and they're just told, oh, that's just your imagination. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Um, or you're being silly, uh, you know, some way communicating to the child that, that those experiences um, are, are either meaningless or they're forbidden in some way. Um, and then I think it's also, you know, it's, I mean, it's also quite possible that there are some people that just never have any of these experiences. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like personally, because that's not been my experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm with you. I think I also think that the majority of children actually do have experiences like that, but just many of them are not, for for whatever reason, carrying on, right? Greg, do you yeah. think so as well? Sorry, yeah. I, I do think so. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I have to ask my second question now, sorry. Um, the masonry, as you describe it, uh, when you first came into it, I think many young masons make that very experience. They have read books about an initiatic society and f without blaming anyone, but I, I know the feeling, you know, uh, you get there and A, you are inexperienced, so you don't really know what you're looking for and B, a lot of yeah. it is not around and you're not really taken by your hand. Now you can say maybe it's not to the others to take you by your hand, but to you have to walk your path alone. But still, the, the offer maybe is not always there. Um, do you think your experience um, 
now in in I have the impression in the 21st century, the last 20, 25 years, um, this has a bit changed and more and more um, brothers in the brotherhood start thinking in the initiatic way and try at least to find uh, um, that pass or is it am i being too positive it's just my my personal experience that uh, that i i uh, project here no i think you're right on um my my experience now since having written the first book and and traveling around the country and now engaging with people outside of the United States online so much. Um, my, ex my experience tells me, and there's actually some research that's being done about this too, is that um, a lot of the people coming to Freemasonry now are looking for this very thing. And I think they always have. Uh, I think there have been times in history when the majority of men coming to the fraternity have come for other reasons, but I think men have always been drawn to the fraternity, and women too, have been drawn to Freemasonry because they sense, either through their studies or through their connection, personal connections with some Freemason, they sense that there is this opportunity for this richer spiritual philosophical life. And, um, and, and um, you know, for a large chunk of the 20th century, that was downplayed. And not just in the United States, but primarily, I think that's where we see it happening most. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think we've just got a tide change that is happening. And, uh, and so that, that part of the Masonic experience is once again coming to the fore. The knife and fork masonry is the, is the expression for the other types very often, at least in the UK, they call it like that. I don't know if in the US this expression is also used so much. Oh yeah, yeah, we <laughs> use the same expression. That's right. Um, Chuck, I want to ask you about uh, how contemplation really allows us to change our perspective from sort of the self-centered perspective to a perspective that's in many ways, not actually centered in any, anywhere or any, um, at all. So, and I, and I feel like on, on a very fundamental level, contemplation is actually the thing that the practice that makes a tradition, an esoteric tradition, um, because typically what's being contemplated is the divine, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, because there's a whole history philosophically and theologically about whatever we think about is not only, you know, where we are, it's like what we become. Like if we mm -hmm. think about something deeply enough, we become that. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was that if you contemplate the divine deeply enough, 
that you will become divine in a sense. Not that you would become God, but that you would then like recognize that you're fully participating in God. Yeah. Um, and so bringing contemplation into traditions that are, well, that's maybe self-identify as esoteric and are seen as esoteric, then you, you bring in like the actual practice that is esoteric. Uh, I think to me that is uh, like mind blowing, mm. but um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how contemplation kind of allows for that shift in perspective and then how that shift in perspective then can literally change us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'll try to I'll try to do some justice to this question because it's a very important one. I think um, so. I think one of the things that happens is that is that contemplation. The value. One of the ways we can describe the value of contemplation is that. It provides an opportunity to inwardly experience the reality of some of the things that our traditions talk about. You know, um, so for example, in Freemasonry, we talk about the great architect of the universe, and um, uh, and we talk in particular in the Blue Lodge, we talk about the blazing star. The blazing star. Um, was widely known in previous times in Freemasonry to be a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling immediate presence of the divine. So the blazing star in in Kabbalistic or Jewish language, the blazing star was a representative of Shekinah. Um, and, and we could look at other traditions to say, what's that called? Like, you know, we might call it Atman or something. Um, and so this blazing star we're supposed to be seeking light in Freemasonry. And the blazing star is the immediate presence of, of the divine light um, in the lodge. It represents the invocation of the Shekinah glory um, on the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, and so if you're contemplating these things, if you're deeply going in to try to not just think about and reason and make connections between what did this person over here say about the blazing star and what does this person over here? I mean, that's all, those are all important things to do, but at some point you have to experience these things. Mystical and magical reality is something that has to be experienced. It's not something you can just argue for and, and, and write out a formula and say, okay, I can see how two plus two equals four, so I accept that to be true. Um, it has to be experienced. And there are levels of understanding and wisdom that come through experience that you'll never get just from an intellectual concern with these things. And that's why I think contemplation is so important and why uh, it's at the core of, of all of these great initiatic traditions because we have to open ourselves, we have to learn how to shift consciousness so that we can open ourselves to experience that thing which transcends us. As long as we keep things in the intellectual realm, it's always less than us. 
But as soon as we open to something beyond the intellect, then it gets bigger than us. That naturally has um, an ego squelching uh, effect. Um, and we start to recognize our interconnectedness with other things. So in Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, for example, we're, both of those traditions encourage us to look to nature. And, and so that's recognizing that the divine is not just this transcendent thing. It's not just this thing that I can experience within the depths of myself hiding there waiting to explode, you know, into uh, the field of consciousness. But it's also out there everywhere all the time. And, uh, and, and so I, I just I think that the more we get practiced at allowing these things to manifest as actual experiences, the more they transform us. And it's not about me taking charge and laying out a plan for who I'm going to become and how I'm going to change. It's, it's allowing the change to happen and, and me kind of getting out of the way. Absolutely. Um, you, you just mentioned something um, that always intrigues me in a way. And maybe what I'm saying is a bit just a commonplace, but um, I hope not because, because it's something that um, seems to get lost more and more in the day-to-day -day life of, of our peoples, especially in the Western, in the Western world. Um, that you have to link your spirit to what you do. And uh, I think all this quantifying of everything, right? All this counting numbers instead of trying to find the sense behind it, which is and has become more and more our common day-to-day -day culture, even necessary for young professionals. If they don't think that way, they are not progressing in, I mean, in many, many fields at least. Um, how do you think that contemplation or maybe masonry or other initiatic societies or something else could help in a larger, in a broader way to, to go against that, that movement, which I think is in the end dangerous to humanity? Mm. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, many traditions agree upon is that the fundamental problem, whether it's whether it's it's described in terms of a fall, or whether it's described in terms of an illusion, the fundamental problem that we all have is is this belief that uh, there are discrete entities in existence and that there's no interconnectedness, there's no interdependence, um, except what is chosen or forced upon us. Uh, that we have a tendency, and I think this is particularly true in, um, in, in modernity, and I'm using that term in a philosophical sense, the idea that, that uh, uh, you know, the, the modern philosophy that developed during the Age of Enlightenment. Um, that things can be broken down. It goes back even further. Of course, we can talk about atomism, going back to the ancient Greeks and talk about atomism. But this idea that there are these discrete entities at some level of our being and, and maybe at every level of our being, 
we are in effect practicing fragmentation every time we think of that way. And, um, and you know, you can look at a ruler. So we like the 24 inch gauge in Freemasonry. We can look at that and we can see, oh, we've got all these nice little divisions, but those are all artificial. Um, that piece of wood or metal or whatever it is, is, is not naturally divided. And that's just an analogy for what we do when we try to quantify things that we don't naturally experience in quantity, right? And uh, is, is we start fragmenting things. And we do this to ourselves. You were talking about, uh, Rudolph, you were talking about different parts of our lives. You said something to the effect of that, that included that we each have different parts to our lives. So for many of us, we think of, you know, we have a work life and we have a family life. And, you know, who knows what other kinds of categories we would say, we have this life, we have this life, we have this life. And the only common factor we see between those is this, this singular entity kind of um, either passively or uh, actively experiencing these different fragmented pieces, uh, moving from one to the next and seeing, instead of seeing the whole of all of it and recognizing that even that static entity that is moving from one life to the next is really part, just part of this bigger whole. It's, it's not a thing in itself. And, um, and so that's, that's the great problem that we all have. And, uh, and it's the thing that we are working so desperately to, to try to fix and heal in ourselves in one way or another. And unfortunately, most of the things that uh, popular culture and society uh, encourage us to do to try to heal that is just dive even further into fragmentation in one form or another. And, uh, and I think all of these great traditions encourage us to move in the other direction. Um, you know, some people like to distinguish between mysticism and magic by saying, well, mysticism is about communing with the divine and, 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 and regaining that sense of oneness or, or having that bestowed upon you. Whereas magic is really about diving into all of the division and diversification and all of those sorts of things. Well, that's not been my experience. My experience has been that both of them enrich the the experiential knowledge of the oneness of all things and the interconnectedness of all things um, that even in a even in a ritual in which I'm focused on something very specific a very particular kind of energy I'm still acutely aware of that energy's interconnectedness with other forms of energy so um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's the thing that, that um, all of the great spiritual traditions are trying to help us heal. Okay, let's take our usual little break here and listen to some more music. Music by Arcanta, as I told you, there latest CD, the last CD, I must say, uh, it is the last CD, I believe, of 27, uh, which was called Book of Mirrors. And now we are going to hear to a second piece, which um, 
the second and also the third piece that we are hearing after the interview are those that were particularly suggested to me by our guest Chuck Dunning. So this coming piece now in the break of this interview is called Invitation. And I'm sure he picked it not only because it's beautiful, but also because that music was a kind of invitation to him, to Charles Dunning, um, to go more deeply into the esoteric path, in the particular into the esoteric path of Freemasonry. Right. So, and after invitation, after that piece directly, it's a bit of a longer piece, that one, seven and a half minutes, right? So enjoy that. Let yourself go and listen to it um, in a calm moment would be the best, I believe. So invitation and after that we return for another half hour of a very interesting interview with my co-host Greg Kaminsky and Chuck Dunning. And after the interview, the third song as always, and that one is called Be What You Are. An important advice, isn't it? So invitation first, the second part of the interview, and then Be What You Are. The music today is by Arkanta. Thank you. 
Along those lines, um, the fragmentation you're talking about and the division and the knowing things as things um, and then the, the way of healing through the contemplative practice of sort of not unknowing things but unknowing things as things <laughs> right you talk about the interconnectedness and the non-discreteness and the sort of continuum of awareness and so on on this is to me this is all the same that every great mystic or philosopher discovers that like you dive into knowledge and learn specific data, facts, and then at some point, maybe, you decide, oh, this is never-ending. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, can know, I can know every fact about everything that exists, and that still won't actually fix the fundamental problem. Yeah. So then 
there's a sort of realization, I guess, that you have to unlearn and unknow all of your ideas and concepts about everything. And that's really the only way to heal it is not like the world doesn't really need healing from it. Anything other than our ideas about it. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, that's that's been my experience, Greg, is is, you know, my I spent a lot of time in uh, traditions that emphasize the mythology of the fall. And um, and in that mythology, the language that is very often used is to say that in one way or another, uh, creation is broken and creation was broken either by something that humanity did, either in, you know, a kind of archetypal state or later on or or broken by a demerge that is kind of pre-human. And mm-hmm. um, and and that our job is to somehow uh, get out of this broken mess and back into heaven. I think that there's another layer of of interpretation there, and that is that the idea that things are broken is itself a layer, a level of working through this, um, and and that. It's not that things are broken, because there's really only one thing. It's that our perception of everything is broken. And, uh, and, and so that's what we have to, that's the thing that we have to work on, is how we perceive what is. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, now to to be able to achieve that, you have given with your two books, and now that question relates to masonry just as much as to other practices. Um, your books give two paths, one being the solitary path in your first volume, and then in this second book that has just been released, it's a, a group approach of contemplation in order to achieve that same objective, right? Can you yes, maybe right. tell us a bit about those two different approaches? Because that's a question I also often like to ask practitioners of different types of, from chaos magic to other groups, right? What is the difference for you between solitary work and group work? Um, are both needed or is one in itself alone if you do it in the right way? It's a whole complex of questions. Can you delve a little bit into that question? Yeah, it is a complex of questions, isn't it? Um, I would say that both are valuable. Uh, both kinds of work are important. And I think that it may vary from indiv- one individual to another about which is going to have the more transformative value for that person. Um, I think it can vary for the same person at different times in their life. I know that's true for me and for other people that I've worked with, where, um, like, you know, for for the first several years of working with uh, my teacher in Hermetic Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism, it was very much solitary work. Um, and, um, and it was clear to me that it had to be. 
that I had so many ego attachments to different kinds of social interaction. And I knew this also as, as a therapist, right? That so much of my life was about what kind of role I could play in society and, and what my expectations of others were and how I wanted to look through their eyes and, and all those sorts of things, that it wasn't possible for me to, uh, to be as, as, as brutally honest with myself as, as I needed to be if I was externally focused. Um, now, of course, being aware of my social presence was important because it gave me a lot to be brutally honest about. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the practice of really paying attention to that, of, 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 of diving into it, understanding it as deeply as possible, where it came from, why it exists, how it was affecting me and affecting the way that I think and the kinds of emotional reactions that I had to things, that's all so very deeply personal. And, um, and it's the kind of thing that only your own private meditations and some really deep reflection, maybe with one other person, whether it's, um, you know, a genuine guru or a really good therapist or, you know, someone who's, who just knows this territory well, that it's only through that kind of deep inner work that you start to kind of uh, clear the cobwebs out of out of your your consciousness. Um, now, the benefits of the group work, on the other hand, are that it can be really motivating for people who have a hard time finding that motivation to do the inner work themselves. They they need that social support and encouragement in order to be able to get to that place and and. Um, uh, and, and so that's one benefit of it. And another benefit of it, particularly when a person has gotten to a place where they can have this deep inner authenticity, is that in group work then, you can really become much more open to experiencing the divine through other characters, through other figures, other people. Uh, their voices, their... Uh, their ideas, their feelings begin to become means through which you are a part of the divine spirit, experiencing other parts of the divine. And, um, and, and, and that experience is immensely powerful. Uh, it takes it takes transformation to another level. It it brings that reality of actual experience of the oneness of things to another level. Um, that uh, that is just enormously powerful. Um, so I think the two complement each other. I think um, they. Uh, they're both necessary. I wouldn't. I would not put myself in the position to say that one of them is better than the other, or, or that if if anybody is going to have to choose between one or the other, that I could make that call for them. I think we all have to have to kind of wrestle with that one ourselves. Well, 
I just want to take a moment to reflect on the fact that um, it's extremely fortunate to, that you're doing this work, Chuck. Uh, it's possible that um, this is like perhaps the most transformative thing to happen to Freemasonry or to Western spirituality in a while. Mm. Um, and, and I know that your books and your media appearances and talks have pretty far reach. And I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are about the changes you've seen in the lodges you attend or you're a member of or that you work with over the years as you've been doing this? Hmm. Um, I would say that in general, I'm seeing more Masonic bodies um, open to at least be aware of the possibility of this kind of experience in the Masonic tradition. Um, I'm definitely see. I, I can I can definitely point out different examples of lodges or Scottish Rite valleys where people are actually opening themselves to the experience through practice. Um, so I think as you both know, I, uh, I founded this organization called the Academy of Reflection. And um, it wasn't just me, it was a, a large group of brothers in the uh, Guthrie Valley, in Guthrie, Oklahoma, the Guthrie Valley of the Scottish Rite that um, we had been doing uh, meditation at our reunions as part of our education program in the, in the valley. And, um, and that group became large enough and was influential enough in the valley and respected enough in the valley that when we said, you know, we really think that this needs to be recognized and supported as a kind of official presence within Freemasonry, um, not only did the Valley leadership agree with us, but so did the Sovereign Grand Inspector General for the Orient of Oklahoma, who issued a charter for the Academy of Reflection. And now there are other, there are several other valleys in the country that are developing their own academies where brothers actually practice together. Um, and so there's one example. I, can, I, I know a number of Blue Lodges where they're now including contemplative practice not only within their lodge meetings, but they may also have like a meditation group that meets on a routine basis outside of their lodge schedule. Um, I also know of at least one, maybe two lodges in California where my first book is now used as a standard textbook for everybody that's initiated into their lodge. And um, my first book is also a textbook for um, the Middle Chamber Education, Esoteric um, 
education program in the Grand Lodge of North Carolina. So it's just really clear that there is a hunger for this and, and that um, there are more and more people. Another great example is the Masonic Legacy Society. So, Greg, you were involved in this in the early days when a number of Masons were called from across the United States to form a think tank to consider what's the future of our fraternity, at least within the United States, and what do we need to do to ensure that the spirit of Freemasonry remains alive and and healthy and, and continues to grow. And the thing that we all agreed on was that there needs to be a contemplative dimension to Masonic education. And so the Masonic Legacy Society uh, developed um, a program for that that is freely available online now. And, uh, And we started training facilitators, brothers who wanted to learn how to lead practical experiences in contemplation, in Masonic contemplation, for uh, other Masons. And we've trained over 50 Masons now. I mean, I think we're significantly higher than 50 Masons now who have been trained in how to lead this kind of experience. So there's just, I, I, I think that there is a real renaissance happening. And the last time the three of us got together and talked about this, this came up. Um, and I'm not alone in this. I'm having more and more brothers tell me that that's what they're seeing, that's what they're experiencing, that's what they want to be part of in terms of what they have to offer as leaders within the fraternity. And I think our focus now is not so much on what can we offer now, but what is Freemasonry going to look like 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now as a result of what's happening today? And uh, I think that that's an important perspective for us to have. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Definitely. And, and your, especially your last, your last remark is crucial. And also in regards to what I wanted to say, because um, I feel that we are at the moment, at least in my personal experience around here, um, in a kind of crossroads. Um, I'm not the type of person who blames everything on COVID, but uh, the, the COVID situation, at least over here, has caused many lodges uh, to work online in order to do their meetings, not ritual, of course, but uh, lecture meetings and discussion meetings online, which the impression I get in the Blue Lodges, not not so much in the Scottish Rite. We, we went a completely different path there. But in the Blue Lodges, some lodges, the, the discussion, let's put it friendly, the discussion between those who are interested in the initiatic spiritual path and those who rather prefer discuss, um, how shall I put it, discuss um, more worldly cases. I don't speak about uh, knife and fork. I speak about talking about not politics, but 
social reality mm. of today you you know you mm. all know what i mean not the spiritual part that that mm. discussion has intensified because of course online you didn't want for for certain reasons speak too much about spirituality also because it's difficult online to do that because you do not experience the community the egregore the ritual at that moment and right. i have a couple of lodges where i hear hmm, we want to go more into that direction that was an interesting aspect and that is also a danger so i feel we have gotten a little bit more on a crossroads than two years ago or is it just me who 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 gets that impression no i would agree i would agree that's uh, i think i think we are further along there what about you greg yeah i mean i feel like there's a big division happening and it seems like it's not just in Freemasonry. It seems like in society yeah. generally, there's people mm -hmm. that that want to sort of follow, for lack of a better term, like the official narrative, and then all the precautions that go along with that, which means limiting face-to-face -face meetings. And then you have other people who are more of the opinion that okay, we've, we've followed the official narrative and done the precautions and, and then I think we're done with that now and we want to get back to like meeting face to face and we're still like, we want to protect people who are vulnerable, but otherwise we need to live our lives and kind of do our business in terms of, uh, Freemasonry and spirituality generally. I mean, the, the thing of it is, is that um, spirituality, unless you're on a path that's solitary, is, a, is about relationships fundamentally. Relationships with other people in the group, relationships with the teacher, relationships with um, the divine, and, and how one fulfills those relationships is like really an integral part of the path in many respects so to not have the opportunity to do that I think is um, a mistake and there certainly might be situations where it's called for to, to sort of step back but and not participate mm -hmm. um, you know and if anyone's like at risk because their health prevents them from being around others during this time, then they need to take that into account. Hmm. But otherwise, I feel like we, we can't isolate ourselves and then expect our relationships with others to somehow like perpetuate through, through that isolation. I mean, it can happen for a time, certainly, but um, as an ongoing, regular way of doing things, I, I just, I don't see how that can work. Absolutely. Yeah. I could be wrong. I'm open to being wrong. <laughs> we always need I, to be open to being wrong, don't we? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I would just, one, one other comment on the, along these lines is that um, 
I am happy to see how much virtual Masonic education has come up during these times. And where I have had the most powerful sense of the presence of the Masonic egregore and the greatest sense of the kind of union that that we can experience in a fraternal setting has been in those virtual sessions where meditation has actually been part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe chanting together um, or, uh, or just doing the same meditative activity together and then processing it afterwards, sharing and reflecting. And that's a contemplative practice too, that contemplative dialogue mm-hmm. about experience. Um, has that's the thing that I think has been most valuable for me. And I've had lots of other brothers tell me that that's the thing that's been most valuable for them. And also said that when we get back to normal, the thing that we all say that who knows whether that'll ever happen or not. Um, but when we get back to having a more immediate presence with each other in our lodge rooms and other Masonic spaces that they want some of what we've been getting virtually, this kind of meditative experience and some of the educational, they want more of that in our, our physical presence once we get to that. And, uh, and so I don't think, I mean, I, I think in some ways COVID may have actually accelerated the renaissance that, mm. that I've been talking about. Yeah. Maybe it has also, yeah, accelerated also kind of purge to some extent, which might, as Greg said, you never know what it's good for, might be needed at some level. I might just want to give to those who do organize such meetings online one one hint, because personally I have organized 40, 40 webinars in a year and a half uh, where I produced videos and stuff. So um, I... I think I have made some experiences there. And one of the most important things is do not use microphones and cameras open for everyone in the beginning <laughs> because you have 50 people arriving. Hi, guy, how are you? Oh, hi, hi. Did you see my mother last week? Blah, blah, blah. It, you never be able to catch that again and to make it an egregore if you start your meeting like that. Turn those mics off, turn those cameras off, just have one or two people speak and say hello to everyone, please. That's the only way to get a little bit of the feeling and the egregore <laughs> you will need for the meeting you have afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, I needed to say that now. <laughs> no, no, and, and I'll echo that with, with someone who has facilitated meditation in these things, and that is... When, when you do chanting together or if you're intoning, you know, some names or something, only one person has the mic open and everybody else is either doing it out loud or silently on their own instead of everybody. Yes, because it absolutely. just doesn't work. Let alone the Internet interferences will drive you crazy. Absolutely. I have one question which which goes a little bit back to the to the solitary work, because there is one thing in your first volume, of course, which is very different from a solitary work, because what you mm. dis- what you describe there is the individual experience of, of, of the Mason in the group. So in the lodge meeting already at its very start, that's a very different thing from being a solitary worker. Could you maybe just yes. uh, say a few words about, about that very special relationship? Yeah, I so 
the bridge between solitary work and group work is to uh, is to focus to be mindful of your experience of group work. So that's what you point out is in that first book, really the first thing that I have people do is develop the practice of mindfulness. And then when they go into the lodge to have a very structured approach to practicing mindfulness of their own experience within the lodge and and to leave, to not socialize, but to leave. And that's to help bridge that. Now, one of the things that's been criticized about my first book, and I think rightfully so, is so is that I think it, it kind of gave the impression to a lot of people that I was saying that's the way you should always be uh, in Masonic experience. I think you should always be mindful, but not in this highly structured way where you avoid interacting with other people any more than you have to. Um that, that was just a structured exercise that was created to highlight what a difference it makes to be mindful when you come into a lodge room. And, uh, and, and, and that if you can do that, then you will be able to appreciate how so the solitary work that the rest of the book is about can inform your group experience in the lodge and vice versa. Um, so yeah, I'm glad and, you pointed and, that out and translated to webinars. That's exactly what we mentioned, right? Yeah. In a way, because if 40 people speak at the same time, you will never get mindfulness into it. There you are. <laughs> yeah. Greg, um, final question. I'm afraid we're already there. Okay. Well, um, I think along the lines of what we we're just talking about is is kind of what I wanted to ask. It's just um, there's a tendency I've noticed in Freemasonry, in other esoteric groups, in religious groups, that when the contemplative, meditative, ritual part is over, the that there is a tendency to want to catch up. Uh, to socialize, to chat, to um, sort of... And, and to me, in many ways, it seems like to violate the sacred silence of the moment. Mm. But that's just me, mm -hmm. obviously, because other people don't feel mm. that way all the time. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, there's still a way that we can honor the, the sacred silence And like you said, take a pause, like go out of the space and then socialize and chat. Um, but but what is it about the, the tendency to not recognize it versus like the feeling you get when you do honor it? It's just so vastly different. Yeah. What is it about that? Um I think one difference is just really very simple, and that is that when we slip into that ordinary kind of convivial uh, back and forth kind of thing that maybe it's about the weather or maybe it's just, you know, who knows what it's about, you know, how's your family doing and so on, that when we do that, it's, it's, it's so easy to just go into autopilot 
And now we're just being our ordinary worldly selves again. And, and we're no longer remembering the presence of the divine right here, right now. And, um, and so if we set aside the lodge as a space in which the profane is not allowed, then from the moment we cross that threshold into the lodge room, we should be making an intentional shift in order to help us constantly remember and be aware of the divine right here, right now, manifesting itself in all of this symbolism and furniture and all of these individual souls here. That's the divine. All of this is the divine. This is the divine witnessing the divine. Here it is right now right here, in all of its glorious appearance and all of its mystery. Here it is. And, um, and, and there can't be, I don't think there can be a bigger shift than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lodge rooms or lodges that have that practice of recognizing that the profane way of interacting with each other remains outside the lodge room and that once we step into the lodge room, that's when we make the shift, are going to have a different experience. They're just going to have a different experience. And it's going to be, you don't have to amp it up. You don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to talk people into it. You just say, okay, make this a shift that when you cross that threshold, you are exiting your ordinary common way of experiencing life and you're now stepping into the glory of the presence of the divine and trying to be as aware of that in everything and you're including yourself as you possibly can. And just asking people to do that in itself is, is a very powerful thing. Absolutely. Thank you. And I think the practice that many continental European lodges have is exactly a reflection of what you said. When we go into the lodge room, we leave the earth, tell it in a hermetic way, we leave the earth element out, right? That's why we have three columns there and not four. And uh, we go into a spiritual surrounding. That's why we leave the earth element out. Then when we go back to the dining room, which in those experiences I am talking about is a formalized dining and not a, not just having fun with each other. Um, that formalized dining is part of the ritual and brings back the earth element uh, through the meal into the fraternity. So to, it's a kind of walking slowly back into normal, so to speak, life and not jumping out of the, uh, of the, of the temple and rushing to get your beer. Right. So, so that's, that's, I think it's important way of handling things. Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, what, what you're pointing out here is, is that when we cross the threshold into the lodge, the idea is to leave the profane behind us. When we cross the threshold out of the lodge, the idea is to take the holy 
the sacred, the divine, with us. Right, and to reintegrate the, the, the fourth yes. element again. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Nice, nice use of that word. Yeah. Well, I think nothing. Well, we could add three hours, but for the moment, why uh, don't we say we meet again and continue with that at some other moment? Um, well, thank you guys. Thank you so much for being with us here today. And um, well, take care and uh, let's let's carry on that way. Yeah, thank, thank you. you, Rudolph. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it.
what you are. As I said, an important advice, especially for occultists like us. Right, that was Arcanta, and it was the music from their album Book of Mysteries, which was suggested and gifted to me by our guest here today, Chuck Dunning. And I want to thank both of you, Greg Kaminsky, my great co-host, and Chuck Dunning for being with us here today. And I hope all of you, you enjoyed that talk. Um, once again, it was recorded uh, live on a live event uh, with video back in September, which was dedicated to our patrons here. And um, if that has inspired you to become a patron, great, go to the webpage and click on the donation button for patrons. Right. Well, that was our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed and we will, of course, be back with episode 15 next week, December already, December the 5th next week. Amazing how time flies, almost Christmas again. Right, who is my guest next week? You're going to ask me and you're right to ask because I'm extremely happy that next week we'll bring the return of somebody you have all so much enjoyed. I think, no, not I think, I know that with him we had the biggest number of weekly downloads for a single show ever. And uh, this guy who is returning this time is John Michael Greer, the great John Michael Greer. And he and I were going to talk um, not about the book and not about him, because we have done that before, but we are going to talk about his take on the occult revival of the 19th and early 20th century. And as you can imagine, the knowledgeable John Michael Greer has a lot of interesting stuff to say about that. So come back next week. I'll be happy to have you for this week. I'm very glad that you were with me and uh, I hope you enjoyed our show. And as I said, leave me a note if you have some suggestions, criticism, or if you just only loved it. And for today, I tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.